0: I've been using um, uh, Dom's book uh, in courses in uh, industrial organization and law and economics for 30 years, and I, I, I taught uh, industrial organization at George Mason for uh, seven years, and I used the book, and I kept using it as I went to other other universities. And the last time I used it was last semester in a course in law and economics, and I, I used it as, as one of the textbooks because uh, I think I think it's important for students to uh, who take these courses to. Uh, uh, to learn the reality of government regulation it 's one thing you know most of the textbooks have all sorts of theories of government regulation, and there 'll be a few footnotes about some study of the effects by some Chicago school economists and that 's about it there 'll be a half a paragraph explaining the capture theory of regulation or something like that but uh, But antitrust and monopoly has uh, fifty five uh, case studies that apply. Uh, Austrian economics to to the understand that 's the lens through which uh, Dom Armentano looked to understand the effects of all these federal antitrust lawsuits. They were all the major federal antitrust lawsuits up to the time he did the the research and in every single one of them, the firms were uh, prosecuted for cutting prices, expanding production, inventing new products, doing all the things that any normal human being would think is competitive. Uh, and so, and so, it's still relevant. Even though uh, you know he quit, uh, you know when when he quit, and and, and uh, it's it's still relevant. I still use it. I'm probably going to use it again next semester. I'm teaching law and economics again, so I'll probably use it next semester. And uh, Roy and I, Roy mentioned to me before the session that uh, what a shame it is that some young Austrian didn't follow through and write uh, the sequel. You know, with uh, antitrust cases from 1982 on to to the present day, with uh, you know a similar format. You know, and uh, and that would be a great dissertation for someone to do at a place like George Mason University if they could just wean themselves away from studying pirates and things like that. <laughs> and, 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 and get back to political economy. Um, maybe someday somebody will do it. I, I don't have high hopes for that, though. <laughs> you know, or, or the tattoo industry in prison. I think there was a dissertation on that topic too. And so, uh, and so, um, and if no one—maybe I'll do it. If no one else wants to do it someday, but it, it would be a great addition to the literature. And, uh, you know, at my university, uh, I I teach in a business school, and the the students can get a a B.A. in economics. They can get a B.A. degree in business economics. And uh, now in the last couple of years, they can get a B.A. degree in quantitative economics. And if if Auburn had something similar and added a B.A. in Austrian economics, I think antitrust and monopoly would, would have to be on the curriculum. It would have to be one of the books. If I had anything to do with it anyway, it would certainly be one of the books that should be in any Austrian uh, curriculum. It's the best example I can think of of the application of uh, real solid Austrian competition and monopoly theory to to government regulation. And, uh, and so, it's, uh, so that's, that's the way I've always thought of it. And so what I thought I'd do with the rest of my time is I know, uh, mostly for the benefit of uh, the people who are uh, uh, younger than Roy Cordato in the audience and, and weren't really familiar with this whole... This whole arena of what happened with antitrust in the 1980s and, the, and into the 90s, uh, theory-wise, uh, and research-wise, and policy-wise. Uh, you know, there, you know, in terms of policy-wise, there really was a bit of a, a revolution in, in, during the Reagan administration because some of the, the head of the Federal Trade Commission was James C. Miller III, who was a student of James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and Leyland Yeager uh, and, and people of that sort at the University of Virginia when he was a student. And when he took over the FTC, uh, he was familiar with a lot of the critiques of antitrust. I'm not sure he was familiar with Antitrust and Monopoly, Dom's book, but, uh, but he was familiar with most of the Chicago School research, which the best of which was very Austrian in its orientation because it was the Chicago school people like Yale Brozen and, uh, and Harold Demsetz at UCLA who, uh, who challenged the prevailing view at the time. The prevailing view, theoretically, was the concentration doctrine. You know, they, they purported to find a correlation, correlation between uh, co- industrial concentration and profitability. And uh, one of the big home runs that was initially hit by the Chicago schoolers was Yale brozen published an article uh, sh- using the same exact data that a Harvard uh, statist, uh, sorry if I'm redundant, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, had had used in some famous studies showing... Industrial concentration leads to higher profitability on average, and then the, they just assumed that the cause of the higher profitability was collusion. It was, it was always just assumed, uh, or they would, they would invent uh, a couple of hundred oligopoly theories to justify the assumption. Uh, but it was never proven. It was just assumed. That, that that was it. And But Brozen took the same data, and he said, well, look at the profitability of this industry that's supposedly a monopoly in 1960, and then control for the business cycle and see what happens uh, 10 years forward. And, of course, the, what he's found was the profitability all, all descended toward the median, and the profitability of the industries at the bottom, the least profitable, tended to ascend toward the median also. And so he found you know, manufacturing was very dynamic. Well, of course, at any one point in time, somebody's going to be the best. You know, somebody, somebody has to be at the top, the, the most competitive. But if you look at competition as a dynamic uh, uh, instrument is, like the Austrians do, is dynamic and rivalrous. Then, uh, this very simple statistical, uh, procedure that Yale Brosen did, uh, really blew away, uh, the, this whole idea that we can just assume that concentration and profitability being correlated, uh, means there's monopoly power. And Yale Demsetz did something similar. He, he had the bright idea that, well, you know, the cause, the cause of higher profitability in some industries could possibly be economies of scale. It's not necessarily a James Bond-type conspiracy to monopolize a market. And, uh, and he persuaded a lot of people of that, too. And the point I'm making here is that w- when the Chicago School did become uh, very successful in criticizing antitrust, it was because be- they became more Austrian-like uh, and-, and started doing the type of research that uh, that Dom did, uh, and, and the Journal of Law and Economics at the time uh, published in the 60s and 70s published a lot of articles, uh, doing you know not not as good as Dom Armitano's book, in my opinion, in, for the most part. But a lot of case studies of, of antitrust. In fact, uh, Aaron Director, the um, sort of the, one of the Godfathers of the Chicago School, is purported to have once said that the whole the invention of law and economics as a subdiscipline started with with him and a few other people saying. Now, wait a minute. All this antitrust regulation has been going on for 70 years at, at that time. Uh, economy, lawyers have, have told us uh, what it's all about. Uh, you know, have, have economists actually studied and used economics to understand what's going on with antitrust? And the answer was no. And so the Chicago School took it upon themselves to start applying economics to the understanding of antitrust. So and so, uh, so there was a big, big, long trail of research critical of antitrust at the time, and, uh, and like I said, the best of it is is the most Austrian type. The worst of it, though, and what distinguished them from um, the uh, the Austrians was they always held perfect competition as the ideal benchmark, as the ideal, whereas the Austrians don't. That's why uh, it was taboo and still is to this day at Chicago to question the existence of antitrust laws because the official story that was told was that there once was a golden age of antitrust. There was rampant market failure, rampant cartelization, rampant monopolization in the late 19th century, and government came riding into town on a white horse and saved the day, saved the consumer from the rapacious monopolist by passing the Sherman Antitrust Act. That's the official story. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, and so uh, George Stigler himself wrote an article in the Journal of Legal Studies in the 1980s, arguing that the Sherman Antitrust Act was a public interest law in the same sense as laws against murder are in the public interest. And so, uh, and, uh, in, and I, wrote, I published an article also myself in the 80s that challenged this. It was called The Origins of Antitrust and Interest Group Perspective. And I was motivated by Don Marmintano's research to write this article. That's after I read his book. The criticisms, uh, even from the fr- so-called free market people at Chicago, like Stigler, uh, uh, they, you know, they, they, didn't, they shied away from really direct criticism of Dom's book, per se, but the, they made the argument that, well, yes, uh, yeah, it's gone astray for 100 years, the, the enforcement of antitrust, but it was a good idea at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> if you just put, put smart guys like us in charge, and we'll straighten it all out. Uh, that, that was always the Chicago view. And so uh, and that's what Stigler said. Stigler said it's a, it's a public interest law, just like the laws against murder are in the, or the public interest. And, uh, and this article of mine that was eventually published in the International Review of Law and Economics was an, uh, was an attempt to answer them uh, because I, I suspected they were, try, they were they were very familiar with Antitrust and Monopoly, the book, and and wanted to cover themselves and, and be out there again with their big gun, George Stigler, to, to say this. And I did send it to the Journal of Law and Economics first, and Richard Epstein wrote me back and said, he rejected it, uh, and the letter said, uh, sorry, we don't criticize Nobel Prize winners around here. <laughs> that, was, that was all the letter said. There was no substance at all And. Uh, Sort of another way of saying sorry. I want to keep my job as editor of the Journal of Law and Economics uh, uh, there, and so but it did publish it and in, and uh, in, uh, it's online someplace now. It's been cited all over the place uh, over the years. This was I think 1984 or 80, 84 it was originally published, and uh, and so uh, but what it, and I was motivated, like I said, by Dom's book to do this because he doesn't start at the origins of the Sherman Act. He's, it's the enforcement of the Sherman Act that all the case studies are. So this was one attempt on my part to answer Stigler and and the critics about the golden age because anyone who had studied political economy and public choice knows that this whole story sounds fishy as can be uh, there. And so uh, anyway, so what I found was I, I had a research assistant uh, go dig up all the antitrust books that are in the library at George Mason, and the, which he did. We had a big stack in my office of all these, these books. And then in step two was, well, what do they say about Actual prices and production levels in the 10 years prior to the Sherman Act of 1890. Do they, like, because all, all these books say rampant monopolization, rampant cartelization, uh, and, and that was the justification. And we found that not a single book, either in the law library or the, or the regular library, had one statistic showing prices were going up. Uh, uh, you know, in general, because this was, after all, a period of price deflation. The post-Civil War era was a period of a uh, pretty significant price deflation. So, just that fact should at least uh, lead you to, to just question this this uh, official mantra of of rampant pr- uh, price increases. Okay, so I said the next step was, well, let's get our, let's see if there are these price data are out there. And and so we did our best to using gov- all the government statistics that are available. And, uh, and in a nutshell, what we found was all the... Well, there was an intermediate step. I had him go look through the congressional record and write down the list of all the industries that were being accused in the congressional arguments of uh, being monopolies. And so we knew who was being targeted. And uh, in a nutshell, I found that those industries... Uh, they were all dropping prices much faster than the price level was falling for the 10 years before the Sherman Act and 10 years after. And they were all expanding produ- expanding production much faster than GDP was expanding, some of them 10 times faster than the, the economy as a whole was growing. And so these were the most rapidly growing, innovating, uh, price-cutting industries in the country for 10 years prior to the Sherman Act. And of course, uh, one response that some people made to that was that, well, it was predatory pricing. Yeah, they, they 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 cut they cut prices for twenty years and lost money for twenty years in hopes that someday they could make a killing. And uh, but that and that's that's still a respected theory in mainstream economics. Predatory pricing, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's never I call it the unicorn of economic theory no one has ever seen one, but that people talk about it from time to time. And uh, where 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 the unicorn theory uh, rests now is in game theory. So they will tell you now, well, yeah, no one has ever seen a monopoly created this way, but a game theorist can can figure out a game that can show you that it's feasible that this could happen. Of course, that's why it's called game theory. It's not it's not serious it's game. It's a game, yeah, and so and so that's that's where that. Stupid theory lies right now, and there's probably many dissertations being written about it right at the moment by game theory, budding game theorists out there. And so, And so I thought I did a pretty decent job in blowing that out of the water. This this idea of this public interest theory of the origin of the Sherman Act, and then uh, Don Boudreau and I wrote another article about. uh, uh, It's on. It was in the Review of Austrian Economics on the protectionist roots of antitrust, and it's about uh, the state governments. Some of the state governments passed antitrust laws before the federal government did, and the same same thing happened. They they were they were targeting the price cutters and and the most prolific producers at the state level. There it was protectionist all the way. And this was in the 1880s, and so, uh, and so, so that's out there, and it's it's, it's mostly ignored by the the uh, the mainstream economists. Of course, they don't want to they don't want to hear this stuff, but it's out there. And so, another thing that, that was going on at the time in, in the 80s, and uh, was that um, uh, the Public Choice School was uh, was doing some pretty good work on antitrust. Uh, um, Bob Tollison and the several co-authors, uh, Bob always had at least five co-authors, so those of you who know Bob Tollison's work, so it's, or so it seems. They published an article in the Journal of Law and Economics called Antitrust Pork Barrel, uh, about how antitrust laws uh, were used as a sort of a hidden form of pork barrel politics by, uh, one company getting, uh, sending people to Washington to lobby to block a merger of their competitor. Uh, the, because they know the merger of the two competitors would make the two competitors more efficient and more competitive than them. And so they, they, they wrote a the really neat article uh, in the JLE about the use of antitrust as a protectionist tool. And, uh, and so they did some good work. Uh, uh, Bill Schugart and Fred McChesney edited a book of readings on the pol- called The Political Economy of Antitrust. It's all public choice-inspired articles on, uh, on antitrust. Uh, but then uh, at the same time... Um, you know, rent-seeking was a big res- part of the research agenda of the public choice school at the time. And uh, and they, they, so they were experts at rent-seeking and were experts at being rent-seekers within the economics profession. And, and one of the examples of being a rent-seeker within the economics profession is uh, Tolleson and a few others started writing articles about how, uh, yeah, the cost of rent-seeking to society, uh, you know, if, if, uh, they apparently thought if they could come up with a really big estimate like, 30% of GDP or something like that, be, they could become very famous, maybe win a Nobel Prize, or something like that. And so they started uh, saying things like, well, advertising is wasteful rent seeking. Uh, um, price, uh, price differ- product differentiation is wasteful rent seeking. Uh, uh, you know, mergers are wasteful rent seeking, because after all, not all of them work out. Some of them, some of them don't lead to lower costs, which is true. And so they they started publishing a slew of articles, uh, whereas the original idea of rent-seeking, in the, in the eyes of Gordon Tullock, who was sort of the, the modern inventor of the literature on this, uh, it was all about protection and lobbying for protectionist tariffs, lobbying for subsidies. That's the wasteful resources, the lobbying. But now they're saying, no, the free market is wasteful. And so uh, so I, uh, I'm not the only one. Steve Littlechild wrote a, a really excellent article in the Economic Journal around 1980 about this. And then I wrote one in the International Review of Law and Economics uh, five years later called the, do, the Domain of Rent-Seeking Behavior, Private or Public Choice, uh, where I pretty much laid out the Austrian view of competition and explained why uh, you should not include advertising, product differentiation, mergers, uh, as wasteful rent-seeking, and, uh, and uh, Dennis Mueller, who at the time was the president of the Public Choice Society, uh, even wrote, wrote uh, an article uh, in the Journal of Economic Literature saying that uh, uh, there should be new standing committees of Congress to determine which types of R&D should be allowed, because he thought some types of R&D were just uh, sort of a sneaky rent-seeking. And so, imagine the rent sinking that would go on if you had a congressional committee that could ban your com- competitors' R and D so, spending. And so, that tells you that tells you the quality of uh, of, of some of the uh, some of the literature that ends up in the so called Journal of Economics uh, Economic Literature. And so, and but but this this again this all of this. Personally, it was it was inspired by Dominic Armentano's book uh, because I, I was always interested in Io. It was one of my interests in graduate school, and then uh, and I thought, well, this is this is just a model piece of scholarship. It applies good, solid Austrian theory. To, to uh, government policy, regulation, antitrust policy, and, uh, and, and we need a lot a lot more of that for sure and uh, one, one sort of footnote type of thing I did along these lines was uh, my article uh, called "The Myth of Natural Monopoly," in which uh, I, I questioned this whole idea, the whole story that's in the textbooks that uh, economy scale of scale economies of scale arose. And uh, and then and and the, but and created monopoly in the free market, and then somehow the government rode into town on a white horse again and saved us from monopoly. Never happened that way. Uh, the government's created the monopoly, and then economists invented a theory to justify it. And uh, you can read my article for that uh, if you want. And the final article that was along these lines that I wrote was co-author, co-authored with Jack High in the Economic Inquiry in 1988. It was called "Antitrust and Competition Historically Considered." And uh, and we, we surveyed every economist in the late 19th century who, who wrote anything about competition and antitrust. And it was a small club back then, so you were, you were able to survey the entire population of professional economists. And it wasn't unanimous, but I think there was one dissenter uh, but it was almost unanimous that they were opposed to antitrust regulation in principle. They thought it was inherently incompatible with, with marketplace competition. They weren't critics like Chicago schoolers. They didn't say, put smart guys like us in charge and we'll fix it. They thought it was the, idea, the whole idea was inherently incompatible. And that, of course, is uh, the same way in which a lot of Austrians think about it. And so I don't know if any of this will have any effect on anybody or anything uh, uh, ever. Uh, I'd like to think so uh, sometime. But it was all inspired by uh, the, uh, the model of Dom Armentano as a scholar. And my time is up.